I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. Series 1, Chapter 11, What is a Sonnet For? To begin, I want first of all to address the question, what is a poem? The best way I have come up with to answer that question is this. A poem says with words what can't be said in words. Or, more prosaically, a poem unites the sense, sounds, and rhythms of words and sentences into an experience of meaning that could not be conveyed otherwise. As in each of us the body and soul form a single complex being, so in a poem, or at least in a great poem, the form and content become a single significant vehicle of meaning that can be found in no other particular combination. We know a poem is great if it evokes an empathic experience that is inexplicably and significantly moving, or, as Professor Mary Holmes, my greatest teacher, used to put it, it raises the hair on the back of the neck. I will discuss this matter further in the three sessions of Chapter 15 on the Nature of Art. Now then, that being said, what is a sonnet? Of course, it's a kind of poem. Let's start with some of its history. A sonnet, until modern times almost always a love poem, is a 14-line poetic form that was invented in the 13th century, increased in popularity through the Renaissance, and has lasted into the modern world. It descends from a Sicilian peasant form of poem called the Strambotto, an eight-line poem rhyming A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B, that is, all A lines rhyme with one another, and all B lines rhyme with one another. The sonnet itself was invented sometime around the year 1230 by an attorney named Giacomo d'Alentino, called Il Notaio, the notary, active in the court of the King of Sicily, later the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick II, 1188 to 1240. Dalentino added six lines to the Strambotto form, making the new form called the sonnet, from the Italian sonetto, meaning little song. Now, here I am going to engage in a long digression. If you are not interested, you may tune me out for a couple of moments. I'll let you know when the digression is over. Dalentino's invention of the sonnet is ascribed to various possible causes. An unexplained inspiration, a play on the number of notaries in Frederick's court, a response to Plato's theory of numbers in the Timaeus and its discussion of Pythagoras's golden section, also called the golden mean and the divine proportion, a response to the number series articulated in the Liber Abaci 1202, or Book of Calculation, by Leonardo Pisano Fibonacci, 1170-1250, with whom Frederick corresponded, or a combination of all these. The golden section is a proportion in which a whole is divided such that the ratio of the smaller to the larger part is the same as the relation of the larger part to the whole. In logic, this proportion can be expressed as b is to a as a is to a plus b. In algebra, as 
a plus b divided by a equals a divided by b. In arithmetic, as an irrational number designated phi and expressed as 1 plus the square root of 5 divided by 2, which works out to approximately 1.62 to 1. In geometry, as a rectangle, called a golden rectangle, that, placed next to a square whose side is equal to the longer side of the rectangle, forms with it a larger golden rectangle. That is, the ratio of the smaller rectangle to the square is the same as the ratio of the square plus the smaller rectangle to the larger rectangle. This proportion has been known since Pythagoras and Euclid. The Fibonacci series is a series in which each number is the sum of the two preceding numbers, 1 plus 0, 1 plus 1, 2 plus 1, 3 plus 2, and so on. Hence, the numbers of the series are 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, and so on. Building up a series of squares the length of whose sides correspond to numbers in the Fibonacci series produces a series of golden rectangles. A spiral drawn to be tangent to the edges of those squares, called the Fibonacci spiral, reproduces the spiral growth of many things in nature, the leaves on plants, the branches of trees, the flower of the artichoke and the chamomile, the scales of pine cones and the pineapple. Many see it as well in the shell of the chambered nautilus, in the spirals of galaxies, in every spiral growth in nature. And since throughout Western history people have found that the golden section produces the forms most pleasing to the eye in architecture and painting, and to the ear in music, there remains great power in the Platonic and Neoplatonic ideas of a congruence between the created natural universe and the most pleasing products of human art. There are literalists who, blind to the aesthetic and metaphysical implications of the Fibonacci spiral and the golden section, are determined to debunk their significance. They gloat on finding that the spiral of the chambered nautilus is not exactly congruent with the Fibonacci spiral. But while it is true that the golden section and the Fibonacci series do not explain anything in nature, the skeptics would themselves be hard-pressed to explain why the proportions of the ancient Greek temples, for example, have been found so pleasing to the eye of human beings of every age and culture. Okay, that's the end of my digression. From Sicily, the sonnet form traveled to Tuscany. There it joined the courtly love poetry of medieval France in influencing the group of poets writing in the Dolce Stil Nuovo, the sweet new style, inspired by Guido Guinizelli, 1230-1276, and including Dante Alighieri, 1265-1321, and his friend Guido Cavalcanti, circa 1255-1300. Dante became the first poet to compose a sonnet sequence, La Vita Nuova, The New Life, love poems to the woman who would later become the figure of Beatrice in the Divine Comedy. Petrarch, 1304-1374, to 
wrote a sonnet sequence to his beloved Laura, and later Michelangelo Buonarroti, 1475-1564, the year of Shakespeare's birth, too wrote sonnets. From Italy, the sonnet form came to England, where it was popularized by Sir Thomas Wyatt, 1503-1542, and others. The two great sonnet sequences in English preceding Shakespeare's were Astrophel and Stella by Sir Philip Sidney, 1554-1586, and The Amoretti by Edmund Spencer, 1552-1599. Shakespeare's sonnets were most probably written in the 1590s, but were printed together only in 1609. Two of them, numbers 138 and 144, appeared in 1599 in The Passionate Pilgrim, a collection in which various poems, most by other poets, were attributed to Shakespeare. I'll discuss these in the podcast for Chapter 14 on hypothetical, spurious, and falsely attributed plays and passages. There is hardly a critic who would not agree that Shakespeare's sonnet sequence contains the greatest sonnets ever written. What is the structure of a sonnet? There are two styles of sonnet in English, both using the iambic pentameter meter, but distinguished by their rhyme schemes. The Italian, or Petrarchan sonnet, is structured as an octave, an eight-line unit, made up of two quatrains, four-line units, and a sestet, a six-line unit. The rhyme scheme of the octave is always A-B-B-A, A-B-B-A. The sestet may have any of a number of rhyme schemes, C-D-E-C-D-E, or C-D-C-D-C-D, or C-D-E-E-D-C, and so on. Despite its name, this form never entirely fell out of use in English. The English, or Shakespearean, sonnet is made of three quatrains and a couplet, that is, a rhyming two-line unit. The rhyme scheme of the typical Shakespeare sonnet is A-B-A-B, C-D-C-D, E-F-E-F, G-G. Some may wonder how so highly structured a short form can have become the vehicle of such great and profound poetry. Don't the rules of sonnet structure limit the inventiveness of the poet? The answer is just the opposite. Robert Frost, when asked about free verse, poetry without meter or rhyme, said, I'd just as soon play tennis with the net down. It's a profound comment. Think how you might answer someone who asks, What fun is it to play tennis when you have to avoid the net yet still keep the ball inside the lines? You would say, Without the net and the lines, tennis does not exist. There could be no game, no great shot, no winner or loser, no Roger Federer or Serena Williams, unless the conventional limits of the game are agreed upon. The same is true for the sonnet. Because the poet has to stay within the lines, that is, keep to the iambic five-foot meter, that is, iambic pentameter, which I discussed in session two of chapter four, and keep within the rhyme scheme of 14 lines, there is a kind of aesthetic pressure, the poet's idea pushing against the limits of the form. When the limits hold, the idea can be profoundly and movingly conveyed 
and the poet can achieve infinite riches in a little room, to appropriate a line from Christopher Marlowe's Jew of Malta, 1589, Act 1, Scene 1, Line 37, which itself rewords a phrase from John Haywood's The Four Ps, about 1530, line 591, Here lieth much richess in little space, that is, much richness in a small room. One of the sources of the Shakespearean sonnet's force is the universal nature of pattern-making by the human mind. When we experience a single item or instance of a phenomenon, we do not perceive a pattern. Why is this thing or instance being shown us? When we are given a second item or instance, we begin to see a relation between them, though we may not be sure what relation we are meant to be seeing. But once there is a third item or instance, suddenly we perceive the pattern that unites them, and then we are ready to perceive the point being made about that pattern. In Sonnet 73, for example, the first quatrain images a season, the second a day, and the third a fire, all to illustrate the effect of the ending of life. The three quatrains in succession imply a shortening of time before the ending, of the season, of the day, of the fire, and of the sonnet. This shortening of time is the pattern that sets us up for the powerful reversal in the couplet. This thou perceivest which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. This three-part pattern is also the basis of the familiar kind of joke that might begin, a priest, a minister, and a rabbi walk into a bar. Perhaps this is one reason that in every culture in the world the number three is powerful, magical, or sacred. In any case, this is generally how a Shakespearean sonnet works, though there are exceptions. One can think of its structure as one, two, three, pow! Now let's turn to the sonnets of Shakespeare. The solid facts about the sonnets that can be called undisputed are few, writes Anthony Hecht in his introduction to the new Cambridge Shakespeare edition. What we know is that the first edition, in quarto, was printed by Thomas Thorpe in 1609. Probably most of the sonnets were written in the 1590s at the height of the popularity of the sonnet sequence form. The rest is speculation, and it has been voluminous. Some have speculated that the first quarto edition was unauthorized by Shakespeare, pirated, and printed by Thorpe to cash in on Shakespeare's name. Many have speculated about the identity of Mr. W. H., to whom the volume is dedicated. Many have speculated about the identities of the Dark Lady and the rival poet. Various proposals have been made for rearranging the order of the sonnets, though none has won general agreement. Some have questioned the author's sexuality, since the poems to the young man are romantic, though only the sonnets to the dark lady are explicitly sexual. I will discuss the question, was Shakespeare gay or not, in a few moments. Apart from all the speculation, Shakespeare's sonnets may be read in two ways. Any particular sonnet read closely will yield greater riches of experience the more one studies in it 
Shakespeare's phenomenal gift for incarnating meaning in poetic form. The sonnet sequence may also be read all the way through at one sitting, and there is nothing else in our literature to equal that experience of the variety and profundity in the phenomenon of human love. Did Shakespeare really mean it? Some critics argue that Shakespeare's sequence of sonnets is a collection of poems constructed entirely artificially, all form and no personal content. In other words, the poet is inventing a speaker of the poem who only happens to share his name, Will, and is engaging in a purely imaginary exercise with no involvement of the poet's real feelings for any actual person. Others argue that the sonnets are literal recreations of Shakespeare's personal feelings about the man and the woman to whom almost all the poems are addressed. Then there are those critics who, more wisely, recognize that both are partly true. The poems could not exist if they were not inspired by specific feelings really experienced by the historical Shakespeare about actual people he knew. At the same time, the poems are extremely complex, artful compositions, some of whose effects depend on the readers appreciating not only the emotions they bring to life, but the inventive, witty, highly self-conscious construction of the forms themselves. How long did it take Shakespeare to write a sonnet? No one knows. Some might have been written in a moment. Perhaps some took weeks or months probably not years, to perfect. We know that generally Shakespeare worked fairly quickly. But more importantly, he had the knack. Shakespeare was a man of great gifts of talent, memory, invention, and so on, exhibited throughout a career that involved thinking in iambic pentameters. It is difficult to imagine that he would have had to struggle much to compose a sonnet once the idea for it came to his mind. Some of the sonnets are greater than others, of course, but all of them exhibit Shakespeare's extraordinary talent for uniting the meanings and music of words in ways that, as Emily Dickinson might say, take the top of your head off. What she actually said was, If I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. To whom did Shakespeare write the sonnets? Sonnets 1 through 126, the last of which is rare in being irregular, a twelve-line poem of rhymed couplets, are written to or about a young man, probably an aristocrat and patron, whom Shakespeare loved in a relationship that was passionate but almost certainly not sexual. In a moment I'll try to elucidate what this means. We do not know for certain who the historical person was, and there are many candidates. The likeliest is Henry Risley, spelled W-R-I-O-T-H-E-S-L-E-Y, the third Earl of Southampton, 1573 to 1624, to whom Shakespeare had dedicated his two long poems, Venus and Adonis, 1593, and The Rape of Lucrece, 1594. But nothing we might learn about the historical person to whom these sonnets were written could add to or subtract from the greatness of the poems. 
This part of the sequence begins with poems urging the young man to marry in order that his good qualities and physical beauty should be reproduced. Then the series goes through every variety and nuance of love, affection, devotion, attachment, jealousy, recrimination, self-immolation, and renunciation, that a man might feel for a handsome and beloved younger man who is his patron and to whom he has dedicated his early work. Remember that such a list of emotions can offer nothing of the real experience of the sonnets themselves. If it could, the poems would not have needed to be written. Sonnets 127 to 152 are written to or about the so-called Dark Lady, a woman with whom the speaker-poet has a love relationship that is explicitly sexual. She is called dark because she has dark hair, dark eyes, and possibly a brown or olive complexion, contrasting with the ideal image of feminine beauty of the age, which was blonde hair, blue eyes, and fair skin. The poems to the Dark Lady express a variety of emotions, admiration, passion, lust, jealousy, and disgust. At one point, the poet suspects that the beloved young man and the Dark Lady are themselves having an affair, evoking his jealousy of both. There are also sonnets indicating jealousy over the young man's patronage of a rival poet. Was Shakespeare gay or not? Was Shakespeare romantically attracted to the young man? Yes. Was he sexually attracted to the young man? Almost certainly not. The proof of the former is in almost every poem to the beloved friend, including Sonnet 20. But that poem also offers proof of the latter. In Sonnet 20, Shakespeare plays with the idea that the young man is beautiful enough to be a woman, but remains sexually unavailable to him by virtue of his male genitalia. How can this be? Was he attracted to the man or wasn't he? In our age, so thoroughly suffused with Freudian ideas that we believe every strong emotion must be rooted in sex, we find it almost impossible to imagine that a romantic attraction can be anything but sexual. Hence, many men of our time are averse to any but the most superficial kinds of male bonding for fear of the potential sexual implications of strong emotions of attachment to someone of the same sex. But Shakespeare inherited a long tradition of passionate and self-sacrificial friendship from the classical world and the Bible. That tradition held male friendship to be superior to erotic love between man and woman. That tradition is present in the myth of Damon and Pythias, in Homer's Achilles and Patroclus, in the arguments of Aristotle and Cicero on friendship, in the biblical David and Jonathan, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26, and in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 13. And the tradition was sustained by Neoplatonic teachings, continuing down through Mallory's Mort d'Arthur to Montaigne and John Lilly in Shakespeare's own time. It is that tradition that stands behind the male friendships in Shakespeare's plays and behind the passionate friendship in the sonnets. As usual, Shakespeare not merely follows a tradition, but expands on it. 
calling upon the tradition of idealized male friends, Shakespeare expresses in the sonnets the most powerful emotions of love without ever intending them to be expressed sexually. He can even play with the idea of sexual attraction, fearlessly and wittily, because it is clear that he considers it out of the question to act on it. By contrast, when it comes to his relationship with the Dark Lady, the poems are far from promoting an ideal of pure friendship. On the contrary, the relationship is clearly sexual, and the poems are explicitly so, even luridly genital and sometimes, in elaborate puns, obscene. Except in Sonnet 20, where he rejects the notion, no such explicitly sexual images or language attend his devotion to the male beloved. Here is an exercise to help the modern person realize the possibility of a non-sexual, romantic love. Can you remember a time when you were about six or seven or eight years old and you had a best friend of the same sex? Did you love being together? Did you want to sleep over at one another's house? Did you walk your friend to his or her home, only to be walked back to yours so as not to be separated? Were you so attached that parting was pain and reunion was joy? If you can answer yes to any of these questions, suppose I now ask, was this relationship sexual? You will probably answer, ew, no. In your childhood, you would not even think of such a friendship as having a sexual source or aim. Yet it is perfectly reasonable to call such attachments romantic, devoted, and passionate. Shakespeare knew the experience of such a relationship later in life, and he also knew the difference between that kind of passionate, romantic friendship, the total absorption in the being of another person, that could and would never be expressed sexually, and an erotic relation of any kind. You can bring whatever Freudian suspicion you wish to this question, and if you wish, you can categorize Shakespeare's feelings as repressed or gay or bisexual or confused or gender-fluid. The reality is that as with the friendships portrayed in the plays, like Antonio and Bassanio in The Merchant of Venice, Antonio and Sebastian in Twelfth Night, Hamlet and Horatio in Hamlet, and Palamon and Arcite in The Two Noble Kinsmen, any such superimposition of our categories on the sonnets will obscure rather than reveal their meanings. Study Sonnet 20 carefully, and you will discover the distinction that Shakespeare himself makes. That will safely guide your reading of the other sonnets. I will be discussing many sonnets in more detail in the three sessions X, Y, and Z of Series 2. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare. <laughs>